We're living through the greatest social experiment in American history. World history, too, but it's uniquely American in some ways. COVID was the powder keg, obviously, but it's also this era of politics, technology, and social change all happening at once, affecting everyone. It's having profound impacts on our health, some we can see and some we won't see for decades. Tens of millions of Americans got COVID. As many as one million may die from it, and countless others will deal with its lasting effects, maybe forever. Then there are the indirect consequences. 35% of U.S. adults are heavier than they were before the pandemic. Drinking and smoking are on the rise. Exercise and healthy eating are on the decline. Then there are the mental health implications. Stress, particularly job stress, rose considerably in 2021. That was before inflation created new financial stress. Not only are we worried about getting sick or our at-risk parents or kids getting sick, now we have to worry about gas prices and post-holiday credit card bills. It's not affecting everyone equally either. Women, minorities, and teens have been particularly hard hit by the physical and emotional tolls of the last 20 months. It's heartbreaking. But a return to health is coming. We just don't know when. Maybe we'll see a deluge of New Year's resolutions next year where people will themselves back on track. But that feels like wishful thinking. More likely, it's going to take a wholesale rethinking of health and health care, not just by people, but by business leaders, policymakers, and marketers. That's where my guest Norm DeGrev comes in. Norm is the chief marketing officer of CVS Health. You may know CVS as a drugstore, but they're quickly evolving into much more. Their acquisition of Aetna gave CVS a full-spectrum view of the healthcare market and how it needs to change. Norm talks about CVS's vision to become a new kind of health company. We talked about trends we saw during the pandemic, which ones are here to stay, and how marketers will have to adapt to them. But first, we talked about mullets, playing the lottery, and a passionate disagreement on eggnog. So take a few moments out of your day for a healthy conversation with Norm DeGrev and me, the dumbest guy in the room. Hello, Norm. Happy early holidays. How are you? Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Normally, we jump right into all the serious intellectual topics we like to cover here and kind of wrap up with some fun and casual things. But I'm thinking maybe just it's been a long year. thought maybe we'd lighten it up right out of the gate a little bit. So have you ever had a mullet, Norm? <laughs> I have not had a mullet. No yeah, mullet. you know, sadly, I, I kind of did actually during COVID. I let my hair grow out, although it wasn't technically a mullet because it was long all the way around. But man, when I put on a baseball cap, I looked like a hockey player. 23% of people say they've actually had a mullet, which presumably is the majority of that is going to be men. I know. So that's like, I mean, it's 46% of men. Give or take. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure it's exclusively a male phenomenon, but yeah, probably significantly that way. That's a style trend. I hope we never see return. Do you play the lottery? I have played the lottery. I know it's a tax on idiocy and sometimes you just don't care. You know, I really never have. Maybe I just have enough other vices. You're perpetually disappointed, I guess. Is you because, are yeah. perpetually disappointed. When the Powerball gets to some gigantic number, I've played because I feel like, what, you know, a dollar, two dollars, whatever. That would be, you know. And actually, what I find is you dream a little bit. And so if you know that the dream isn't going to come true, that's okay. You can't think it's going to come true. This is not going to come true, but it is kind of fun to dream a little bit. That's a good way of looking at it. Maybe inspire me to pick one up next time. It is kind of fun to be part of that zeitgeist, I'm sure, too, which I'm just sort of sitting on the outside looking in whenever it happens. Yeah, I'm not religiously opposed to it. It's just sort of not something I ever did. Actually, we see that well over half of people, only 35% of people say they never play. That's me. So 48% say yes, but occasionally. That's about half of Americans. That's, that's where you fit. And that seems about right. 
You think you could go an entire day only using your non-dominant hand? No way. No way. It just seems like it would be awful. I mean, I, I don't think I could go an hour using my only my non-dominant hand. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wanted to say like, oh yeah, I could really do that. Like it'd be a really fun challenge for myself. But the more I thought about it, like the different things like writing, I do the cooking at our house. Like I don't, I think I'd burn the kitchen down if I tried to cook everything with my left hand. Um, I'm moving a mouse with your left hand. You know, I think you'd get frustrated after a while. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Actually half of people think they could, or maybe could. I don't, I actually don't really? buy I don't buy I it. To see that as like, maybe that could be a reality show. Yes. I, I'd like to watch somebody try to do it. I'm super jealous of anyone who's ambidextrous, but that wouldn't count. And that's certainly yeah. not, that's like a single digit percentage of the country. If you were to take a job in a restaurant, which position would you like to have? If I had a bar, I'd be a bartender. I, I was a bartender, actually, at one point. And I like talking to people. I think it's fun. You serve them. Nothing gets too intense. It's kind of nice. I think it's a different relationship being a bartender than a waiter. Yeah, that was exactly my answer to bartender. That's the second most popular choice. 22% of people say bartender. The most popular one is host. Really? I mean, I kind of get that one, too. Like, you get to sort of be the greeter and show everyone to their seat, but you don't have to spill things on yourself or normally deal with belligerent drunk people, I guess. But I'm with you on bartender. That could totally be sort of a post-professional career for me, telling jokes. Third was cook. So bartender was second at 22 and cook was third at 11%. What are your thoughts on eggnog? Love eggnog. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm Dutch through and through. The Dutch love their cheese and their dairy. And I love eggnog. I mean, eggnog with rum, eggnog without rum, eggnog with whiskey, eggnog without. I mean, it's just, I love it. Yeah, it's very polarizing, actually. In fact, looking at the results, it's a perfect bell curve. There's 24% of people that love it. They're all for it. 38% is sort of middle of the road and 24% that are flat out against it. I'm in the against it. I, I'm normally like pretty much kind of like everything. For some reason, it's the one of the rare things that turned me off. So I'm well, super- I think people get turned off by like, what's in it or what's it made out of? But I would also say like, you turned off by milk. I mean, milk's moving from another animal. Are you okay with that? Like, I don't yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. I mean, I kind of am. I mean, I don't know. There's just something about it. I'm not super into sweets and I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. So, all right. So we're headed into the holidays. One last question, we'll call it a poll question, but it's not one that I have a result on, at least not in front of me, because this is going to help transition us into our more serious topics today. But does Norm have any New Year's resolutions lined up that he's comfortable sharing? I do have one. I'm going to get my pilot's license. So I don't know if that's much of a transition, but I do think it'd be fun to do. Oh, good for you. That's exciting. I'm very envious of people that have both the initiative and the skill to do that. I like to ride in planes, but I've, I've never bark on being able to fly one. Well, good luck with that. So, so I asked the question because we've published quite a bit of data and I've done a lot of work on this personally over the last couple of months around sort of health patterns of consumers over the last now almost two years. And you sit in a remarkably almost unique perch as it relates to the healthcare trends or the health trends of Americans today, because at CVS, not only you've got the retail side and the insurance side, the healthcare side, you see the whole thing from a bird's eye view. And we've kind of been anticipating eventually some sort of return to health among the American consumer. And that's not just because COVID has come and gone, hopefully someday, but a lot of people have probably let their guard down on their health over the last couple of years, notwithstanding the folks who've of course had COVID, but We know that over a third of Americans say they've gained weight since the beginning of the pandemic, which is much more than the number who've lost weight. We expect at some point for that trend to begin to change or improve. 
What is your outlook for the American consumer, health consumer going into 2022 and hopefully beginning to emerge out of COVID? Well, I think you can see there's a pretty close connection between health and seeing other people. And you can look at that two ways. One is I don't see other people, maybe I'm a bit depressed and you eat for joy, or you know, maybe you're in your house and there's just food around all the time. The other way you could see it is just a bit of vanity. And like you get outside and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't look like this. Like this, <laughs> this is terrible. And we really see it in the numbers, you know. So as long as we stay seeing each other outside, I think health's going to continue to improve. And even in the beauty area, you see it once masks come on. I mean, when masks are on, like, they really need lipstick. And so that'll grow. And so in some ways, it's kind of, I think, indicative of what's healthy for humans, which is being around other humans helps us actually be a better version of ourselves. And the, the more separated you get, the more you get poor behaviors or kooky ideas. Yeah. There's a fine line between vanity and what I think is just sort of common courtesy too, right? Like we wear deodorant as much for vanity as we do for the sake of other people, right? And the correlation sort of just with being around or being in the office, right? You do obviously, I think you do care more. That's not even necessarily vanity. It's sort of professional. Forget that CVS, again, not only do you see sort of the health related purchases people make, but you have beauty category aisles in your stores and really interesting, interesting observations you get to make. Have you seen trends in consumers that you expect to be permanent, like changes since the beginning of the pandemic or throughout the pandemic? Well, permanent, you know, what's really permanent, you know? All right. Well, how about, la let's say last, lasting, lasting for some period of time. Well, right. There's no question that certain categories of health people have taken a lot more seriously. And those categories are around the idea of protection a little bit more. So think about like vitamins and immunity and that sort of idea. And so those products are doing well. And I don't see that ending anytime soon. Those things were on an upward trend before COVID and they're going to continue for quite a while. And so then there's the categories we talked about, which will continue to grow like wellness and beauty. If you kind of include that in wellness and skin as you're more outside, that stuff will start to grow as people go back outside. But the big difference will probably be more in the immunity protection, which could also get into, by the way, home diagnostics. So like people are getting their home COVID test kits now, Binax, you know, kind of kits. But that's going to start a demand for lots of other home diagnostics. Like, wouldn't it be great if you could test for strep throat at home? Wouldn't it be great if you could test for the flu at home? Wouldn't it be, you know, like, just think about all these things that are, you kind of know what you have. You just need a test to confirm it. And I think a lot of that stuff's going to arise. Some of it's actually happening. It's just kind of going through the regulatory process. Uh, out. Well, 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 adjacent to that, one of the big trends we know has been sort of meteoric and rise since the beginning of COVID is just telehealth, which is the other side of the coin of that home diagnostic right relationship with our doctors that particularly among the older population, which might have been otherwise intimidated about the idea of seeing their doctor on a computer or just expected it to be a negative experience and then realized that not only was it not a terrible experience, but they learned how to use their machine and they could do it on Zoom or Apple, you know, whatever device they had. The home diagnostic opportunity that, you know, even like we're seeing Best Buy is, for example, is investing in that area. Yeah. You guys made a huge decision over the last few months to kind of change your retail footprint. Reduce yeah, before you go to that, though, I just want to talk about telehealth for a second. Yeah, go ahead. So telehealth took off all the rage during COVID, and we know why. You didn't want to go to the doctor, but sometimes you had to see a doctor. And I think that did open the door for more growth in that area. I have to say, I think it may have also gotten a little over its skis as far as interest in that area. 
And it's going to grow. It's one of these things where if you look at the adoption curves, like in the short term, beliefs exceed what's going to actually happen, but in the long term, beliefs underrepresent what's going to happen. And I think that's where we are with telehealth right now. We're kind of, we got beliefs exceeding what's happening because as things come back, there is a very, you have to think about a few things. One is there's a very human connection in healthcare. And we all know you get some of that in a video call, but you don't get all of it. And so people do value being in a room with somebody who's looking them in the eye and having a discussion with them. The seniors tend to have time and tend to value relationships. So to the extent they feel safe, they also want the calmness to like explain it to me again, would you, you know, like that, you know, that sort of thing. And many people can call their doctor whenever they need something. So I think that some of these things are going to continue. I would just say, so I think telehealth will grow. I think that we haven't really nailed the most compelling offering within telehealth for people. I think if we can do that, then we can really see acceleration. Now, if you put the two together, we're home diagnostics, so like strep throat. So why now, here's, here's something you can put together. I have a connected thermometer. I get a home diagnostic strep kit. I do those two things. And now I do a quick telehealth visit with a doctor who gives me a prescription. Now you have a compelling offer. So I, I think all this stuff is going to happen. We're just kind of going to get the, the expectations of reality more aligned. Yeah. I mean, dude, you just stole my thunder a bit in the way I was going to ask the question about your retail footprint, because that was exactly where I wanted to go with it, is that as much as we've talked about telehealth, there's still so much of a personal and intimate and in-person experience that people want to have with healthcare. And particularly, you know, these older populations, which I don't necessarily think is a generational phenomenon. I think it's just a more of a life stage phenomenon. You know, we see the same thing in banking, like older people still like to walk into the branch, you know, they're retired, like it's something to do and they get to have interactions with people, right? And even going to the doctor, maybe for a well visit. But where I was going with it is you guys have shifted a lot of your strategy around your stores toward wanting to be more of sort of an, an encompassing kind of health, I don't know, health center is a strong word, or I know that has different connotations, but you guys have made decisions to change your retail footprint. And I'm sure there are lots of other kind of economic reasons behind it or what have you. But how do you see the CVS store and brand evolving, understanding this sort of like some of these technical innovations that are happening, but understanding that there's still a large percentage of people who are always going to want to have a more sort of face-to-face interaction with their health providers and want to get out of the house? Like, How did those kind of trends play into a big strategic decision like the one you guys have made recently? Well, you know, there was a study done and diabetes is one of the largest chronic conditions in the country. And seeing what would drive adherence to the medication you have to take. So you know, adherence means get people to keep taking it. And a lot of tactics were tried. And the number one tactic that drove adherence, the most high, highest performing tactic was eye-to-eye contact from the pharmacist. And so that says a lot, right? Absolutely. And so we are moving more into that area of health, health services in the stores. In fact, we're going to have primary care clinics, which that's not even a store, that's just a doctor's office. But what is important is if you look at the healthcare system, there's been a lot of amazing, amazing developments in the healthcare system, but it's actually not very convenient for people. It hasn't really been built around people. It's been built around providers and hospitals and academics and not really around people, which is kind of an interesting thing if you think about how important people are to that. And so now our view is if you can make health easier for people so that they can access it, you know, walk in and access it when they need to, go there when they're doing other stuff, 
see someone they know, have a friendly conversation with them where they feel like it's more eye level, then we think we can affect the health of a large population in a meaningful way. Now, you don't have to have huge impacts on the population health to have it be a really worthwhile business. I mean, a few percentage points is worth a lot of money. And while I'm just talking about that, I think what's important for people to know is that the system was really built around acute conditions. I broke my leg. I have cancer. Like, you know, things that are like, they're, they're kind of immediate and serious. Those are not the biggest issues in healthcare today. The biggest issues in healthcare today are chronic conditions. I have diabetes. I have high blood pressure. I have depression, anxiety. These are things that require maintenance. And so we simply have a system that is too expensive and because it's built for much more complex things. And that's part of the healthcare problem in America. And so I think when you look at CVS, we're trying to say, is there a different model you can bring to the biggest healthcare problem in America? Is it cheaper? Is it better for people? And and we think we can. Well, it shows a ton of leadership and clearly insight. And something you mentioned, it's it's kind of like the same thing that sort of keeps people from like, I know if I've gone too long without going to the dentist, I'm embarrassed to go to the dentist, right? I'm like, I'm going to get yelled at for it, you know? So there's definitely that pressure, but you mentioned something we had, I don't know if you know, Claudine Shiver from Amazon, but we had her on as a guest earlier this season. And we were talking about one of the bigger trends that we do think is, if not permanent, that's lasting coming out of the pandemic is that people have a new appreciation for time in their lives than we had Mm -hmm. before, because we have, we've actually experienced what it's like to have time for maybe the first time in our professional careers or our family lives where things just slow down. And obviously, a big part of Amazon's value proposition is getting things to you fast and easy and whatever. But I do also think that the idea that I can go to one place and have this whole experience that I need to have, there's there's an efficiency and a convenience that Mm. that's wrapped around. I know that may not be your number one, obviously, kind of core mission there, but it really aligns with something we see. Well, it is actually. I mean, think about I'm living this right now. We are in the sandwich generation, taking care of parents, taking care of kids. My wife does most of the health management and shopping stuff. And so, yeah, efficiency matters to her in a big way. I also think about the fact that you can take your kids to a CVS and get them a medical appointment and they don't hate it. They're not fighting you the whole time because the kids love going to CVS and they can play with everything that you see. In fact, sometimes I don't want to take my kids there because I can't get out of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just makes, it makes a ton of sense. And, and the other point, I think, everyone will agree if they stop, step back and reflect on it is that healthcare has not been a consumer centered thing and it has not been built to be beneficial to the consumer beyond, of course, their health. But well, I mean, a great example, this is really simple, but a great example of this is, so we're doing COVID vaccines right now, you know, for five to 11 year olds. So we now give out a poppet toy when you're, when you come get your vaccine and you know, it's something kids like it. It's something to do while they're waiting. It's really simple. The kids really do like it. I mean, there's no healthcare service that I've ever seen that really thought that way about what's going to happen in the waiting room. And so when you bring this kind of consumer-centric mentality together with health, I think you get to a better experience for consumers. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, you know, my kids are older now, they're teenagers, but the only sort of beneficial thing I remember, they would get excited enough about the sticker they got at the end of the doctor's appointment that like, you know, there doesn't take much to please the kids. So, so if you can double down on that, it'll go a long way. So one of the big challenges, of course, and you, you mentioned sort of how do we get people to engage and participate in their health? Because a lot of us either we're too busy or we're afraid to do it or we're just ignorant to it. I was just writing up a study for that we just did about President Biden announced an initiative for health insurers to reimburse people for home COVID tests. 
And the percentage of Americans who said they're intending to purchase a home COVID test, DIY COVID test was right around like 9% of people who say, yes, I'm very likely in some short period of time to purchase one. And that number doubles when you ask them, it will be fully reimbursed, but that's still only like 19% of people. So even if we give them to people for free, the vast majority of Americans are like indifferent to, you know, incredulous about it. What does that say about people either psychologically or, and and we're going to transition a little bit to some political undertones of some of these things, but why is that? Why are people saying, look, you can put a million tests in my house and I still don't want them. What's that saying to us about a consumer? Yeah, I mean, it's very different belief systems, isn't it? And so how are those belief systems getting constructed? And, you know, a lot of times today, they're influenced by social media and other media, too. I think I don't really have the answer on that one, John. It's, it's Well, we, we'd run for office if we did, Norm. But I guess what I'm saying about at least the testing, look, if it was like 50-50 about something like that, or even like what we see in numbers with vaccination, it's not purely political, but if it's only 19% of Americans that say, I want home tests, that's not a purely political phenomenon. And it's a test, not a vaccine. You're not yeah. the vaccine. You just get a test. I know. I know. I mean, is it just that, is it just that people are like that adverse to the idea of jamming a stick up their nose? Or is it like, we don't want to know, or we'd rather live in some sort of, I'm going a little bit different place than politics here. It's like, am I blissfully ignorant? Would I rather not know? Right. Yeah. Like, you well, know, I'm not going to get it. So I don't need that. I think it's all of these things, you know, maybe it's different if you have kids or if you don't have kids, because, you know, the kids, sometimes you just need them because they're going to go to school and you got to figure something out. I think sometimes it gets a little bit maybe to I versus we, you know, like, am I going to be okay? Yeah, but are we going to be okay? Like, that's a very different, very different mindset. Yeah, I think that's what really nails it is just sort of individualism of like, I'm fine in my family. I don't need to be tested. It's everybody else who has COVID, not me, right? We don't want to confront. Yeah. And I think that is a human condition that has long predated the you know world of political tribalism that we live in today. But, but another consequence, and this is probably a bit more tribal, is we've just seen people, quote, doing their own research about a lot of these things that we've seen maybe a crisis in confidence among certain people in medicine and medical science and healthcare practitioners. How do we regain that confidence with people? And that's, again, that's a big lofty question, but, yeah. but do you have any thoughts on it? Well, I think the person that you tend to believe the most is either a healthcare practitioner, or medical expert, but let's set them aside for a second, because if it was that easy, we just everybody would just go ask their doctor and we'd be in a, better, in a different spot. So the next person you tend to believe the most is someone like you. And so I think the way that we've got to go after this situation is really find those audiences that are resistant to certain things and find people who are in those audiences that actually aren't resistant and have them talk to the audiences. And you can think the the simple way, there was a lot about the Black population when COVAX first came out and the resistance because of a pretty poor track record of America and how they treated that population. Yeah, but you can think of lots of populations that are resistant. And I think that they're really mostly going to just listen to people like them. And so that, in a way, is the power of social media done well, but it's been the peril of social media so far. Yeah, that's well put. I mean, the word influencer has a small I and a capital I connotation in this case, like people do. And the the other thing that social media, social media enables you to find people who agree with you. 
right? You and make you, and make you believe you're part of a larger group than you are sometimes because you can find so many people who believe with you. Or agree this with is you. the thing, like I was thinking about how in politics, people said, oh, social media changed the election or something like that. And I was thinking like, did people see an ad on Facebook and change their mind? And I'm not actually sure they did. I think that they confirmed. And what social media did is had more of the people who confirmed turn out to vote. It wasn't that it actually swayed a population. So I think the challenge for those companies is how do you use your platforms to provide balanced views? And by the way, that's balanced views to people who are more liberal too, like because they have the same biases. Yep, 100%. So let's shift. This will flow into social media a bit. But one of the biggest tragedies of COVID, notwithstanding you know all the loss of life and everything, has been its impact on mental health. Mm particularly women, you mentioned the sandwich generation. And that's really, you've got moms and women and heads of household tend to be sort of the health practitioners within the family, both not just, we talk a lot about them as parents and what they're doing with their kids. And of course, in their own personal health, but how much more they involved they are in their aging parents' health as well, which has been the big at-risk group. So a lot of that burden has fallen on women. The other group, which is teens and teen women in particular, which there was already a lot of stress and strain kind of emanating from the whole Instagram culture. But, but, you know, COVID also isolated kids a lot for a long period of time and isolation for kids is very complicated where you sit from your purchase at CBS, looking across both the retail and the healthcare side of the market. How do you see that trend? Is it showing up in your stores in some ways? Is it showing up in your numbers in other ways? Is it something we feel like we can put our finger on to address coming out of COVID? Are people talking about it enough? So what's your take on sort of the mental health crisis that we're in? Well, the number one class of prescription drugs in America, the most prescribed class of drugs in America is anxiety and depression. Number one, there's not bigger class. So that's good in a way because people are getting help that may not have otherwise gotten help. And it's indicative that something's not right with the human condition in our country. And so we see it in the data. We see it in the data in a big way. It is also why we are pushing more and more into mental health. So we're now putting mental health clinics up. We've got 34 of them up and we're going to expand more, expand more. And it's it's an area where I think telehealth can actually work relatively well, to be honest. I do think better in person, but I actually think it can work relatively well, especially because some people are intimidated to go into an office to meet with a therapist. Like every step feels like a giant step for them. And so maybe telehealth makes that a little bit easier. Interestingly enough, Gen Z, they don't have any issues with it at all. Like they'll, they'll go talk to anyone. There's no stigma. They're like, yeah, I'll talk to anyone. This is great. And so in a way, by knowing themselves and not having the stigmas, they're already more mentally healthier because they will talk to people, which is really good. Yeah. I mean, uh, In fact, we have data to confirm that actually Gen Z, not only is that completely accurate about sort of just general comfort with it, they actually prefer doing it on Zoom than they do in person. It feels less vulnerable. I mean, they need to be vulnerable, of course, in that situation, but it feels more like they're talking to a support person rather than somebody they know. And I think that changes the dynamic of the conversation. It's really fascinating. So now let's go into women and then let's talk a little bit about teen girls. So the crisis for women has been really pronounced as well. We see it in our workforce. We see it in our business. And so that is something that there's not a ton that CVS can do about the consumer in that area, other than we acknowledge it. We try to help people. In the height of COVID, we were helping with childcare for people so that people can you know, do stuff. But it's this has just been hard for a lot of people. There's no question about it. I think as a leader, 
what I try and do is just be very open and comfortable with people saying, I can't make this because I got to go do something else today because they do. And if they've taken the effort to say something to you, they've thought about it a lot before they've said something to you. So, so don't make it any worse for them and help them live their life. And then they'll be a good employee as well. On teens and teen girls, I mean, it's bad. And social media has been a real contributor to this. We as I think you know, launched one you know, an initiative called Beauty Mark, where we are completely, we don't materially, digitally alter any of our photos. And we require any brand that is going to be marketing with us to disclose if the photo has been altered or not right on the photo. And because what you find is there's a lot of things in social media, and certainly there's social aspects like, hey, I wasn't at the party and I feel bad about that, or I don't. There's a lot of feeling good about who you are looks-wise, too, that happens on social media. And I just think we have to keep pushing down that path. We're just not where we need to be. We've created this thing that seemed to be good and seemed to be exciting. And it has addictive qualities. We all know that. It was designed to get people to engage. And it gets you to engage through provoking certain amounts of dopamine and others in your, in your brain, and you stay engaged. And that is just like any other drug that you get addicted to, right? And so we need more control on what's happening with, with teens because they're just not mentally mature enough to deal with it. Yeah, and certainly talking about it is important. Putting a spotlight on it is important. I don't necessarily think you know Facebook and Instagram nefariously developed their platforms to do these things. They may as much be unintended consequences, but I have two teen daughters, 17 and soon to be 15, and they are prolific users of these platforms. We had a study out about two months ago and I went to them and I said, look, look at this really interesting data. Like the more active teen girls are on these social platforms, the less positive body image they have for themselves. And my kids were like, duh, <laughs> like they, they knew it. They know this is going on and, and they kind of almost feel trapped by it because the only thing that makes you a bigger social pariah than maybe having the wrong image on Instagram and Facebook is having no image, like not right. being on the platform. Yeah. Interesting. You, know? you guys, and you personally have listened to a lot of your talks and seeing things that you've written. You guys have taken a really strong leadership position and being more responsible in your marketing and doing well mm -hmm. by your marketing and your advertising. You just mentioned the images. How do you think about the trade-offs that have to be made because I want to do I do want to talk about marketing and advertising because I know you're really like a big thought leader in sort of digital advertising too and I want to talk about that. But how do you balance the trade-offs between on one hand being responsible and doing well by the world and the way that you market and where you spend your money, right? And understanding that that your marketing and advertising has to be performant, right? <laughs> like Facebook, on one hand, people can point to its things that it could do better. And again, whether those are unintended consequences or sort of by design, at the end of the day, Facebook is an incredibly highly performant marketing platform, right? Because mm -hmm. it can be measured and that's why all the dollars go there. So how do you strike that balance and think about that balance in creating that sort of mix of responsible investment, but also knowing that your dollars have to work for your business to grow? Yeah, I think they can do both. And I think if they're not doing both, then you're not really doing marketing well enough, honestly. Like I think that let's just take what people talk about a lot as purpose-driven initiatives kind of things. If there's not a business case behind the purpose-driven initiative, then you're an evangelist and that's cool, but that's not business. And so if you look at the way, like we got out of tobacco, there was a business case behind that. And I don't need to go through all of that, but what I can tell you is that our sales went up $16 billion in the following year. And so 
when we just did the beauty mark initiative to not retouch images, there was a business case about it. And what I can tell you is that, is that our market share and key groups of millennials doubled in the following year. So you can put these things together. And on the other hand, I'd say you can provoke response with really crappy clickbait, but it's not building a brand. And so I think you can put them together and be pretty effective. So I, I just don't see the need to have a difference in the two. Well, we tell our clients all the time, don't do virtuous, responsible things because it's good business, but it's good business to do virtuous, responsible things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you know what's actually even bigger business is in the business of attracting and retaining employees because people now, they want to work for a company that shares their values. And they know, people know like, oh, there's an inconsistency in what you're saying. You, you know, you say you're about health, but you sell tobacco. Okay. Like they know that. And so when you make moves that show your commitment to something, they like that because they're like, wow, that's cool. That's what I want to be about. I want to be about that. And they'll stay around a lot longer for that than they will because, you know, you gave them a, a small amount more in their bonus. Right. Another really good example of the same kind of phenomenon was when Dick's Sporting Goods stopped selling guns in its stores. That was very politically controversial, obviously. And I personally initially thought, oh man, that was gutsy and that's going to really hurt their business. Their business boomed after that for this, yeah. you know, for very much the same reason. Again, that sort of convergence of you can be socially responsible or, or, or have a non-commercial agenda that has lots of commercial benefit. Now, the vast majority of Americans, politics kind of skews your whole view of who the country really is. The vast majority of Americans are like pretty middle of the road, just want you to do the right thing. They want to live their life. you know. Yep. And if you connect with them that way, you can make a difference. But they will pinpoint hypocrisy when they see it, you know, yeah. to your point. And I think like when you talk about employees in these in companies, they're sort of the canaries in the coal mine because they're the ones that are going to see the hypocrisy first because they're living, eating and breathing it. I don't think the average consumer is paying that much attention and thinking that much about it. But when it's yeah. smacks them in the right. face, they see it. A big theme sort of just this season of our podcast, we've had a lot of titans of industry on the marketing side. Morgan Flatley from McDonald's was with us earlier in the season. And we've talked a lot about the future, where, where marketing is and advertising is going. You know, we're talking about social responsibility, those things. Of course, we've, we've had lots of conversations over mm -hmm. the season about coming out of the George Floyd crisis and that level of sort of responsibility. I kind of want to get into the weeds a little bit with you, the plumbing of marketing and advertising, because it's not something the average person thinks a lot about or understands a lot about, but I know you're really involved in the Mobile Marketing Association, other things that you do to really see sort of how the sausage is made. And while it might often be invisible to the average consumer, that plumbing is what drives a lot of some of these nefarious that you talked about clickbait and you know the algorithms that figure out what is somebody susceptible to click on or to read and these machines kind of prey on our vulnerabilities. But I want to talk about it on two dimensions. One is sort of where do you see the future of marketing and advertising going as privacy policies get increasingly stringent, the cookie eventually disappearing, maybe hopefully someday. And then what do you see as sort of your responsibility or your both maybe, again, social responsibility and the commercial benefits to you of driving it to some particular future or future outcome? I think it's going to be good is my, my headline. And listen, I, as you know, I built a career driving a lot of this data-driven digital marketing. But the cookie going away 
will address what is also what's also really happened, which is that the data-driven marketing, when you really look at what's happened, it's like, oh, we got all this incredible technology, we got this data, we're doing all this stuff. And in the end result, it's like a banner ad that's irrelevant to the site that it's on. And sometimes that's like a retargeting ad for something you already bought or you don't really want. And it's just like, well, it's just like for all of the successes that we've talked about, the experience isn't really that wonderful. And so I think what we're going to end up with, there's two ways it's going to go. One is, of course, the importance of first-party data. That, though, everybody wants first-party data. I get it. But I don't think many people have enough of a value exchange with consumers to get and maintain first-party data. And I see this, like retailers actually do, because you come into the store, you shop, you want coupons, whatever. You know, like there's some ongoing reason that you have a relationship with them. CPGs want this data, but they're struggling because consumers don't generally want relationships with all these CPGs and, and in an ongoing way, it's not really happening. And so you got to find a way to get first-party data that, that provides value to consumers. So that's good, actually, for consumers. There's now a value exchange in what's happening. The second thing that's going to happen is you're going to get a rise back to what matters, which is a bit of context. Like when someone's on a particular site, actually have some ad that's relevant to the content they're looking at not just what was relevant to them three days ago when they were looking at your product on your website. And so that's going to feel better for consumers. Then you're going to see what really matters, which is the real evolution of lean back video to be a lot more relevant for people as well. So that, that I think that part is all going to be good for people. I think the privacy regulations are generally good for people. You know, the truth is I don't think most people really care. Honestly, I, and you probably have the data on this, but I don't hear anybody I know talking about, gosh, Facebook's got my data. What do I do with it? And like that company has my data. I just don't hear anybody talking about that. Well, we uh, say we care. That's the problem sometimes with survey data. And here I am. Obviously, it's my thing. But one of the challenges we have to parse out in survey data is people will say it concerns them and it bothers them, but it doesn't take much for them to give up on it, right? Like if you're telling me I have to forfeit all of my privacy in, in order to read one article, I don't have to pay for. Probably, <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> so they care, but the price is really cheap. Correct. <laughs> yeah, I'll sell, I'll sell out for the cost of reading one article on USA Today. But part of me though feels like because people don't understand the cost of that trade-off they're making and what's actually happening with their information that we almost have a responsibility to protect them, right? Yeah. Because they don't understand how one-sided the barter is that they've just made, that they've sold their soul right. to read one article. I think that's right. It does need some regular, I mean, like, cause it's just so complex. The average consumer isn't gonna understand it or wanna spend a lot of time in it. And that's, that's like a good rule for policy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I live, eat and breathe this stuff and there's still parts of it that are over my head in terms of the way all the connectors are happening and the things are moving. and. Can the open web survive? How does the open web survive? And, and that's, let's look just good, call it. it. It doesn't look good. It's like <sighs> the, the consolidation viewing to a few sites is really happening. Consolidation of spend to a few sites is really happening. I mean, consumer spend and media spend. And so we're kind of getting a re-aggregation. Now, of course, there's a long tail of niche stuff, but I'm saying that that tail isn't adding up to as much as it used to add up to. And it's really kind of interesting. And then you get the fact that these distribution channels then control a lot of the audience for publishers now. And so it's harder for them. So it's a really good question. I mean, listen, when Yahoo was a big search engine, I thought, why do we need Google? And you know, obviously we do. So I'm not the best predictor, but I can tell you that it's hard to see where we go from here 
how we would go back to a big open web. I mean, people have need for sites when they have a specific need for a product or a service or something like that. I just don't see the audience as being as big. I know, but I, I think where I get kind of depressed about is that it's hard to figure out economic models where journalism can thrive and survive and be- That's a big deal. It's a big deal. And I agree with you hundred percent. And I know that those organizations are trying and we need them, but it's really hard. It's really what? hard. And then where does that go from there? Where it goes is, is that special interests hire quote unquote journalists to write quote unquote articles that just reinforce their points of view. Yeah. Well, and they, and they don't even need to be hired to do that. I mean, I'm afraid they're learning because algorithms are learning. So as, as fragmented as the media is becoming, fragmentation is not good for large companies that want large, well-resourced newsrooms. And they learn very quickly that they attract a particular type of reader. And that reader is looking for information that makes them yeah. feel better, that aligns with their beliefs. And as soon as drama of some nature or fear or something. Right. Like but as soon as they get their hand too close to the stove, maybe writing something that's a little bit outside of the narrative their readers expect, those readers have a million other places to go and they jump. You saw it during the election when if Fox News wasn't seen as politically conservative enough, people went to watch Newsmax, right? Like people will flee if a publication doesn't deliver them what they want. Now, now one thing I am hopeful about, and maybe it's just naive optimism, is that with the departure of the third-party cookie, a lot of the sort of pure play programmatic sites that have lived on yeah. cookie-peddled third-party data, that's going to disappear. You mentioned what makes me hopeful, and you nailed it, was this world where you want your content and your creative to land in a place that's aligned with the content of the site, right? Yeah. And the field. That's like back to the future a little bit, right? Like you're going to okay. deliver direct across premium publishers because you also want to be in a brand safe environment. So you get that back in that scenario. Yeah. And maybe just maybe the death of a lot of the long tail maybe dubious publishers will push some of that money further upstream into the better, more premium publishers that do that do good work. At least I can yeah. I can hope for that outcome. Yeah. Well, Norm, this was as great of a conversation as I expected it to be. As a consumer, thanks for your leadership and healthcare and aspiring to make the experience more convenient for me and my family as a person in the marketing and insights industry, your leadership and responsible advertising and leadership and just innovation is great. Really enjoyed spending the time with you. Hope to have you back some of the world. This world's moving so fast. We could probably talk again in a week and there'd be something new to talk about, but it'd be great to maybe have you back sometime. Really appreciated you making the time right before the holidays. Happy holidays to you and your family. Any parting words before we we sign off? This was great, John. I just I really enjoyed talking to you. Your, your mind bounces around to lots of interesting topics. Your research is really cool. I, I find it really interesting. And as you know, and I've said to others, your Saturday newsletter is amazing and people should sign up for it. <laughs> Thanks, Norm. Appreciate that. My best to you and your family the holiday season and best wishes on a great 2022. Take care. I do. Yeah.